0: It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 224 for January 9th, 2011. Recorded January 7th. I hope you enjoyed last week's free-for-all program, and perhaps you found some interesting new programs to try out on your computer. This week, let's take a look at Adobe Camera Raw and Bridge. Don't shortchange them. If last year brought you a new digital camera, maybe you're also working with the latest version of Photoshop or Photoshop Essentials. Both of these applications come with Adobe Bridge, which you might be tempted to ignore, but don't. Bridge is your direct link to Adobe Camera Raw, which is a far more capable application than I'd realized. Because I've heard from so many readers and listeners that you want to hear more about digital photography, I'm planning to increase the number of articles on that topic this year, and this is the first of them. I developed my new appreciation for Camera Raw thanks to Photoshop CS5 Essential Training by Michael Ninnis at lynda.com. In just 11 hours... That's right, 11 hours. Ninnis covers everything you need to know. I watched this class over a two-day period, and I found that I've been doing a number of things the hard way. No surprise there. Camera Raw for global, Photoshop for local, is Michael Ninnis' message. What this means is that when you want to make an overall image change, that change should be made in Camera Raw. Photoshop should be reserved for the finer details. I already knew that Camera Raw needed to touch raw images first, and that's because Photoshop can't deal directly with raw images, and I knew that Camera Raw can be used with great advantage, even when you have just regular JPEG images. But all I did was get to first base with Camera Raw when I should have been using it to get to third base, or maybe for an occasional in-the-park home run. And here's something that may surprise you. The image you take with your expensive SLR digital camera will probably not look as good initially as what comes from a point-and-shoot camera that sells for a tenth of what you paid. Relax, don't get on the phone and call the lawyer, not just yet, anyway. A raw image has far more information than a JPEG, which is what you'll get from the point-and-shoot camera. The cheap camera will have applied some processing to the image, and the result will be a better image right out of the camera. But the difference is that the raw image has everything the camera's sensor saw, and that means it can be manipulated in ways that the JPEG can't be. So your raw image is better, but because your camera was built for use by a professional, you'll need to do a little more work to make it look better. This week's example picture is Phoebe, a cat, and the way the image came from the camera is okay. It's a little soft, contrast is a little low, the color isn't exactly right. So, I worked on the color balance, the exposure level, highlights, shadows, overall brightness, overall clarity, changed the vibrance a bit, and the saturation. Now, in the past, that's where I would have stopped, and I would have tried to do the rest in Photoshop. Well, every raw image will need to be sharpened. JPEGs right out of the camera have some sharpening applied. A raw file will have none applied. Adobe Camera Raw gives you precise control over sharpening, and on the same panel, the ability to reduce color noise and luminance noise that will be present in images from even the best digital camera. Because I started with a raw image, Adobe Camera Raw allowed me to modify the hue, boost the saturation, change the luminance even of any primary or secondary color. Because of Phoebe's coloration, I boosted the reds, oranges, yellows, and greens she looks a lot better. Then I used Adobe Camera Raw to add some vignetting to force the viewer's eye more toward the center of the image. You'll see all of these images on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Although I knew that Camera Raw could be used to add what are called graduated effects, I never really considered the feature set to be robust, and about that I was totally wrong. The ability is little short of phenomenal. I added a neutral-density vignetting filter to the left side of the image. And the result is kind of an old master painterly lighting effect. This is a gigantic improvement over the original image. And keep in mind that everything I did on this image, the one you'll see on the TechBinder Worldwide website, was done in-camera raw. I can now take the image to Photoshop for more specific modifications. So if you have an Adobe application... Make sure you check out Camera Raw and Bridge, even if you don't shoot in raw mode. Thirty years ago, the beginning of the digital revolution, back when we first began to see computers show up on our desks, few people would have considered libraries to be high-tech operations. Twenty years ago, card catalogs were beginning to be replaced by electronic catalogs, And some libraries allowed patrons to dial in on a modem and check the catalog. Ten years ago, your library might have provided online book reservations and perhaps access to some databases. Today, library patrons at many systems can download music, audio books, and electronic books without even visiting the library. In other words, libraries are now often on the cutting edge of new technology. On today's program, we'll be talking with Monica Bachman, manager of the Worthington, Ohio Library, and with the library's director of technology services, Susan Allen. It's important to note that while our discussion will touch on some of the specific programs and services offered by this library, which, by the way, was Library of the Year nationally in 2007, much of what we'll be talking about applies to libraries throughout the world. Susan Allen, the Director of Technology Services, is at the center of this change that, from the outside, seems to be quite rapid. What's it look like from the inside?
1: Well, I know when I became a librarian, I've been a librarian for ten years, and we were already automated, and our catalog was online. Um, ten years ago, we were not yet lending ebooks, though that's come along in the last decade for us. Um, and audiobooks were in the format of just on your CD or mm-hmm. or as a cassette. So we've seen kind of that really take off. And in the last year, for instance, our, our e-book and e-audiobook uh, cir- circulation has gone up 55% from this time last year. Wow. Mm-hmm. So it's growing That's fast. Quite
0: it's growing fast. Yeah. Whenever we have change, some people make some Perhaps outlandish suggestions. Some people have suggested a future library that would have no physical books, just files that can be downloaded. Librarians, they say, will just help patrons research information, but won't have to deal with any of that physical media. Does this differ at all from your view of the future library?
1: I have I have some thoughts about um, you know where libraries are going, and you know people saying, oh, libraries are just going to become. You know, There won't be stacks of books. Um, but I think that I kind of subscribe to the nature of scientific revolution and that there's always going to be the old paradigm until the last people hmm. from that old paradigm die. So um, I think until people in my generation, I'm Generation X, are dead and gone
0: <laughs> and there's none of
1: us left, I think there's still going to be libraries with lots of books, but I think we're going to see it's not just going to be librarians having, and I don't think it is right now, it's not libraries just having the skills of helping people find what they're looking for, but also navigate the choices of how to get, how to get the right the format that they want and getting it to work for them. We're already seeing people ask us to help them with that and I think mm-hmm. that's going to continue to grow. We, we kind of see it as a,
2: a balance between and trying to find the balance between traditional service, which is the books, and meeting the needs of, of the, the patrons and, and the technology and the future services. So it's really, I think, the trick is going to be to find the right balance and make sure that we're anticipating the needs of both.
0: Several of the library systems in central Ohio have formed what's called the Mid-Ohio Library Digital Initiative, M-O-L-D-I dot org on the web. Do you call it Moldy,
2: which was an unfortunate acronym? Now, now we call our it's di- digital downloads. Yeah. So it's a digital, digital downloads
0: consortium. Okay, then digital downloads. How many libraries are involved in the digital downloads program, and how does it how does it work? I think we're up to 14,
2: 14 now. Um, and it started out with um, a grant um, that Grandview and um, Upper Arlington obtained, and then. Um, to launch the service and then thought it was a great opportunity to get libraries to cooperate in central Ohio. And then um, as the, it took off and success um, built, we, we added other libraries in the area around. And we pool our resources and share the cost of the the service and um, contribute money to the collection so that we can offer Um, the, the service to a wider range of people.
0: The consortium has a single website that patrons of any of the member libraries can go to directly needing just the name of their library which you pick from a drop down list and a library card number that gives them entrance to the site Or, of course, people can approach by going through their own local library's website. So this suggests that all of the media, the books, CDs, audio books, all of these would be available to all patrons.
2: All of the books in the consortium are available to all the patrons um, of those libraries in the consortium. So, yes. And you can go. Not all of the libraries have them linked in their catalog. So the the two gateway approach has been the the most um, effective for the For the patrons to be able to access,
0: we're talking with Monica Bachman, manager of the Worthington, Ohio Library, and with the library's director of technology services, Susan Allen. As I noted earlier, although we're talking about programs and projects that may be specific to this system, libraries everywhere are going through revolutionary changes. The digital downloads program, for example, ties together more than a dozen library systems in central Ohio, including the large Columbus Metropolitan Library system. Having mentioned earlier that the Worthington Library was National Library of the Year in 2007, I should also note that the Columbus Metropolitan Library was National Library of the Year in 2010. Initially, all of the libraries shared all of the media in digital downloads, but as I understand it, individual libraries can now add media that would be available just to their own patrons.
2: If you mean things that may be specifically to, say, the Worthington community, Mm -hmm. um, that is actually an enhancement that they have just recently offered through that current vendor where we can um, purchase things that would be available just to Worthington libraries patrons. So that that was a, a response that the vendor um, heard a need from the libraries and, and has um, built in some facilities for us to be able to meet that, which so is all great.
0: Oh, this, this is very much a work in progress.
2: Absolutely, <laughs> and and the nice thing, um, the vendor that the digital downloads is actually um, through um, OverDrive, is a Cleveland-based company, and um, they have been really responsive to meeting the needs of the, the libraries. So they seem to get it which is nice.
0: Electronic books are available in several formats. Some are better than others. The Adobe Portable Document Format, or PDF, is used during the prepress process by publishers. In fact, these are the files that are usually used to print the books. Some publishers, then, when they create an electronic version, just repurpose that PDF on a computer screen that works sometimes. The PDF might be acceptable if the screen is large enough, but on a handheld reader, some of these PDFs, if they're not generated with a handheld reader in mind, are nearly unusable. My preference is for the EPUB format, or perhaps the Moby Pocket format used by Kindle, but today there are something like 18 formats, and that's just simply too many.
1: I don't necessarily have a favorite format for the ebooks. Um... I think some of the
2: accessibility options are really nice, where the the, the read aloud features, mm-hmm. the ability to be able to speed up the the way um, the text is presented, I think is is really nice. Um, I'll be honest and tell you that my favorite format is still audio, and I've been you know carrying an MP3 player around for a really long time, um, and that's still my favorite and, and seems to be where we get the um, the largest circulation right now. E-books are catching up to e-audio, but still e-audio is just a little bit more popular.
0: Well, one thing I've noticed with electronic media is that I seem to be reading a lot more than I used to. I may take an audio book to the gym. You can consider that reading. It's actually listening. And, of course, then the lightweight of the electronic reader is just really nice when it comes to lying in bed. You don't have to hold up this big, heavy book. It's something you can hold between a thumb and a finger. And then any time I have just a few unoccupied minutes somewhere, I can pull the reader out of my briefcase and use it. So I wonder, are people reading more now just because of the convenience factor?
2: I Actually, just this week, was on the treadmill next to a lady who was running and reading her nook. Which that was the first time I had ever seen that happen, and yep, I've seen that, <laughs> um, and watched her turn the page when she was running, and, and found that <laughs> quite humorous. But, <laughs> but good for
1: her.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, people find ways to use these things.
1: Well, one thing that I've that I found a little frustrating and or limiting with some of the the ebook readers is that you know, when you can add notes or or highlights mm-hmm. to an ebook, there I think that the publishers have a long way to go in really making ebooks more than just a digital copy of a book. I mean, it can be so much more. You know, some of them have the capability to to make notes in your e-reader on a book you've downloaded, but I don't think that they're exploiting the capability for you to export those and to mash things up and to maybe pull in video or pull in text or you know, and let users pull things and I hear publishers talking about Embedding video in some of their ebooks to enhance them, but I really haven't heard them talking about making them really mashable for people to, you know, take a piece of, of, of literary work and maybe pull in my own artwork and then be able to mix that up and export it. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a whole lot of creativity and a lot of um, really neat, innovative things that could be done, but I just don't think the publishers are there yet in making that happen.
2: I think having the ability to have them be more accessible and, and in the middle of the night if you decide that you need something, or, and I've had folks that were taking off on a trip and needed to down, download something before they left town, and being able to do that right from home is is adding to that convenience factor mm-hmm. and making it so you, you don't have to access things when we're open. So in, in a lot of ways I think that that is aiding the the reading movement.
0: We're talking with Susan Allen, Director of Technology Services at the Worthington, Ohio Library, and with Library Manager Monica Bachman. The topic is electronic media and how libraries are dealing with change. The business model for a traditional library, in other words, one that offers primarily just books, is pretty clear. The library purchases the books and lends them to patrons. Eventually, the books become worn and are discarded or replaced. Electronic books don't suffer wear and tear. They can't be lost, at least not very easily. So how does the business model differ for libraries these days with regard to costs?
2: There's kind of two different models out there right now. There's the there's the, the model that's very similar to the book where you, you buy a license for a particular copy. Um, you also need to have a platform to operate that from. So in a way, you're, you're buying the book, but you're also paying a platform fee to, to have access to it electronically. And then there's the subscription-based, where you pay for an annual subscription to a particular service that has a particular group of content. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, in some and some vendors are offering kind of a mix-up of both of those models, and then some are just, you know, you buy a particular book, and then you've got access to that license for that book.
0: Many libraries, in fact, maybe most these days, offer access to the Internet. The Internet is a lot like real life. You'll find good stuff, and you'll find some not-so-good stuff. There have been efforts over the years, particularly early on when the when the internet was still fairly new to to the public new to being offered in libraries uh, there were attempts to force libraries to use nanny type software to block objectionable content and for what I've seen, most of those applications fail to block some of the sites that pretty much anybody would consider objectionable yet they block sites that aren't objectionable
1: I think you in a nutshell kind of summed up the the um the way that that, talk, that type of technology works you pointed out some some limitations of it um and here in Worthington you know we have uh, every patron when they use our computers agrees to an acceptable use of the internet policy and they read they have to read through it and agree to it and um but we do not police uh people's usage of the Internet. Um, And if any issues do come up, we do address those on an individual basis.
0: By way of extending services, some libraries, including this one, offer Wi-Fi access throughout the building. There's almost always at least one person in the lobby area when I come in using a laptop computer. So in short, it looks like this service is one that gets a lot of use.
1: People are very very happy that we offer it, um, and it's getting used more and more. I just I get monthly statistical reports, and we've got more and more users. Uh, I think people are looking for places where they can connect. More and more people are getting devices and um, looking for places where they can get online, and um, and maybe it's maybe the use is up also just because of the economic times. Perhaps it's hard to really tell. You mm-hmm. know why is. Use up. But um, the public really is um, happy that we offer the service, and I think it's something where now a lot of people kind of expect it um, Mm -hmm. to go into a coffee shop or a library. Um, They expect to be able to pick up a Wi Fi signal.
0: So, technology is a really big thing in libraries these days. The Worthington Public Library has a newsletter called Page Turner, and I noticed on the front page that Technology Petting Zoo. The event occurred on December 5th, and I didn't see the newsletter until after that, so I didn't get a chance to come to it. I probably would have, because it sounds interesting. What is a technology petting zoo?
1: We um, partnered with um, some local businesses. Uh, We had uh, one petting zoo where we partnered with Best Buy, and another where we partnered with uh, Sprint and GameStop. And they brought in some equipment, and we also had um, e-book readers. Um, We had the Sony e-reader and the... Amazon Kindle and Barnes and Noble Nook, and we had uh, Apple's iPad, and we had um, also a digital download station um, in the from inside our library with some uh, uh, iPods and MP3 players, and people came in and got to to kind of play before they get an idea of whether or not they want to buy, mm-hmm. and um, learn how to how to use an e-reader and get their questions answered, and, and it was, uh, I think we had, um, let's see, we had one on December 5th, and about a little over 80 people came in two hours. Right.
0: So. In short circuits, an annoying fraud is back, and even though it's not being executed very well by the fraudsters, some people are undoubtedly falling for it, and in the process, making themselves vulnerable to identity theft. Here's what you see. A message claims to be from webmail.org or some other domain. In this case, the domain does exist. It's registered in China, but there is no associated web page with it, so there is strike one. The message you receive has been sent to undisclosed recipients. In other words, all the messages were blind carbon copied. Now, if you have an email account that has a quota and you exceed that quota, you will receive a personalized message from your email provider. Strike two. The message begins with two dashes, a space, and a new line character. This is the indicator that everything below is part of the message signature. This is really old stuff. goes all the way back to the beginning of email. This could simply be an oversight by the fraudsters, or perhaps it's an attempt to make it difficult for someone to forward the message. Either way, it's strike three. I quote from the message. You will not be able to send or receive new mail until you boost your mailbox size. Boost? Strike four. The link provided is to a site registered in the .to top-level domain. .to is Tonga. The address, though, is disguised to look like a link to a school. The final part of the address is system-support.edu. It's actually just a directory name that's on a server at Beam.to. Beam.to is a redirector service in Switzerland. Now, it's a legitimate service, but it is often used by fraudsters, and no legitimate email provider would send you a message from there, so strike five. And then there's a supposed signature. It looks like this, technical support, and underneath 192.168.0.1, Now, apparently, this is supposed to convince the reader that the message is legitimate and the sender is reliable. It does neither, because the IP address listed is commonly known as localhost. If you ping that address, you'll probably receive a response, but the response is coming from your own computer. The exception would be if you've set up your home network to use a number other than zero in the third position, as I have, and then the ping will fail. So, strike six. Whenever you receive a message that appears to be from your internet service provider, web hosting service, email provider, bank, or anybody else, I recommend that you call to confirm the message. Don't just follow the link that's in the message. That's a good way to get into trouble. This next little item is called no longer just a house of mud. It seems that I write and talk a lot about Adobe. Maybe as much or even more than Microsoft. In part, that's because Adobe's products do cool things, like improve photos, videos, and publications, while Microsoft's products mainly perform essential but less exciting and enticing functions. That's a major misrepresentation of both companies overall, but generally speaking, it does have some merit. Adobe posted quarterly earnings late in December. This was Adobe's first billion-dollar quarter. The company earned $269 million in the fourth quarter, that compares with a loss of $32 million the year before. For the year, Adobe earned $775 million on 3.8 billion in revenue, compared to earnings of $387 million on 2.95 billion in revenue the year before. And by the way, Adobe never really was a house of mud. The company name comes from Adobe Creek, which ran behind the house of one of the companies founders thanks for listening to tech Byter worldwide the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes i'm bill blinn check out the website www.techbiter.com, and if you like send me an email from there thanks bye-bye